Well, we are in the fourth week of this series on the book of Romans. And, uh, you know, we've, we started this whole series with this imagery of Romans being an album, you know, like a record album. Like, you guys don't remember these, do you? Like, this kind of album, right? Do you remember this? Anybody in the room know what this is? Okay, a few of you, right? And see, here's the dilemma. You go buy an album, and you have to look at all the songs, and you have to say, okay, I'm going to buy the whole album, but I'm really only getting four songs that I really like, right? That was the whole thing about the record. And then, then you'd go take it and you'd put it on the turntable and you'd have to lift the needle on to each track that you wanted to play. And then, you know, that was the way it worked way back when. Except now, you know, you don't have that problem, do you? Because you can buy every track you want. You can have a customized playlist. We're not taking that approach with the Book of Romans. Lots of people want to just play the songs, the tracks out of the Bible that they like. But we're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter so that we can, we can experience the fullness of what Paul wants us to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we start today, let's look back at the few of the tracks that we've looked at already. Let's review week one. We looked at the idea of truth, the track of truth, the, the song of truth. And Paul says to us, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the truth because God has made known not only who he is, but who we are. And once we understand who he is and his graciousness and his love, but also his wrath and judgment, then we know where we stand with him. And that's really what we learn about track number two, the problem of sin. For those three chapters, really, the message was over and over again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no hope for us as human beings. On our own, it's over. We are sinful, fallen human beings who are children of wrath. Last week, Tony began to talk to us about the solution of Christ, and we found out that that comes through faith, not through works. We could never work to be good enough, but through faith, we can have righteousness Faith not in faith, though, not just like have faith. It's faith in a person, Jesus Christ. And today we want to we look at this solution more deeply as we study the word justification. Anybody ever study the word justification theologically? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so good. Take some good notes. This is the center point of all Christianity, the word justified or justification. Now what we want to do is we're going to look at Paul's uh, chapter 5 of Paul's book of, the Ro of Romans, and we're, if you'll follow along with me in your outline, because we're going to be looking at verse by verse throughout this, this amazing, most important, probably book of the Bible, some people say, and most important chapter in Romans, chapter 5. It begins in chapter 1. We see that, um, that when Paul writes this, He's going to give us this concept of justification, and he's going to introduce us to the results of justification in our lives, which is peace, hope, and love. Now, amazingly, somebody found something that they could do with a record album in today's world. I don't know, you know, but that looks a whole lot like what I grew up with, the artwork of the 60s and 70s. Some of you recognize that artwork, right? I mean, it's that hippie look, and we, in the 60s, we were looking for what? Peace, hope, and love. And we're still looking today, aren't we? And Paul writes this chapter and he says, look, I'm going to introduce you to how you can have peace, hope, and love. And starting in chapter 1, he says this. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's start with the first word. We have to comment. Therefore. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, what's it there for? And in this case, okay, you got that. What's it there for? It's a summation. It's, it's like this conclusion to a process of reasoning. And Paul has been laying this case out He's of who God is and who we are and, and the problem of sin. And now he says, now I'm going to tell you how it all gets solved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You'll see that word, therefore, several times in the book of Romans. Each time it's a shift, it's a summation of a process of argument that Paul's making. We'll see it again in chapter 8 and 12. So as he begins to speak then about this uh, gift of justification, he says, look, you have been justified. You've been justified. What does that mean, to be justified? You know, when I was growing up, uh, I was in eighth grade, and I'll just tell you now, this is eighth graders. If you're any eighth graders in the room, you, you are not to emulate Pastor Dan's behavior as I tell this story, all right? This is what not to do, all right? When I was in eighth grade, I used to sneak out in the middle of the night. Anybody do that as kids? Okay, you won't want to admit that if your kids are here, okay? But I would sneak out, and I lived in a two-story house, and I had to crawl out a window and around on the roof and get to an antenna, and, and then I could shimmy down the antenna, and then off I would go. And except that night, that fateful night, I was caught. The police decided they didn't think an eighth grader should be out at 1.30 in the morning or 2 o'clock, whatever time it was. And so I was hauled back to the front door, walked up to the front door. The policeman rang the bell, and my dad in his pajamas comes out to the door and looks at me. You can just imagine he was not pleased. <laughs> Like, how did that happen? He looked at me and he said, well, what do you have to say for yourself? I said, uh, nothing. And he said, well, how can you justify this behavior? And of course, I could say nothing because I couldn't justify my behavior. I'd been caught red-handed. I'd been caught by the law and brought back in front of my heavenly, or my father, as we are brought back by the law in front of our heavenly father. One day, we'll all be there. We'll be at that door. We'll be ringing that bell, and our father's going to come, and he's going to say, how can you justify your behavior? And what this verse, Paul's verse, is saying, is saying, you have one response, one response. You can't self-justify. You'll just say, Jesus. You can say, I can't, but Jesus can he died for all my sins. He took them all away. Justifies, when you're justified, it, it means this. It means just as if, just as if I have never sinned. That's justification of Christ. That's what's offered to us by faith, not works. We can't do anything. In fact, this word justified, if you study the Greek grammar, you find out that it's, it's, a, it's really all about a past event, something that's already happened, not something we have to do. We don't work to be justified. This is about something that has been finished 2,000 years ago on the cross. It has been done. It's good theology to know that because, well, it's not dependent upon us. And we are passive recipients. That's what the grammar, the Greek structure tells us. We're, we're passive recipients of this gift of grace. We don't do anything for it. 
And as a result, we now have peace with God. Now, there's a difference between the peace with peace with God and peace of God. People today want peace in our world. And we, we saw again this week, as I saw, I've seen so many times throughout the time I was growing up in the 60s, certainly with Vietnam and beyond that, saber rattling in the world, right? War or rumors of war. And, and yet we want peace, but it starts with in the world, it starts with peace with God first. And until there's peace with God, until everybody understands the true nature of God and what the future is, I'm afraid we will not be experiencing peace, world peace. But you and I personally, we can have the peace of God, the peace of God in our hearts. But it flows from peace with God. The fact that we are no longer enemies with God. That we are now friends with God. Romans 5.10, which we'll look at in a minute, says, For a while we were enemies. Because that's our natural state. That's how we're born. Enemies of God. Children of wrath. Chapter 6 of Romans says. And peace with God is a good thing because warring with God would certainly result in our destruction, wouldn't it? And so we have this gift of peace. Justification brings, first of all, peace with God. And with that peace, we can now experience peace in our hearts, even though we can't always experience it in the world. We look at chapter uh, 5, verse 2. Paul writes this, he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we, which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. How is this peace accessed. It's accessed by faith into grace. So faith takes us into this place of grace. Not our works. We just believe. We believe in the offer of salvation. And it takes us and it allows us to stand in, firmly in front of, in Christ. We stand in that grace. We have access only, the only thing we can do is believe. We can't work for it. We can't be good enough. All we can do is believe. And if you look in your notes, you'll see a couple of verses there. You should go and study. Because over and over and again, Paul writes this reality. That it's by faith, not by works, but by faith that we have access to this peace to this justification that we've mentioned. And we stand there firmly. We can do that because it's not our work. And then we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and this rejoice word means to boast. We can boast in it. We can boast in it because the glory of God we've already seen in Christ, we know he's glorified and taken to heaven. The hope that we have is not that that happens. It's already happened. It's already been done. We can boast in that. What we're boasting in is the hope that we too if we believe, as we believe, we'll receive this eternal destiny, that we will be glorified sometime. When we die, that we will go to heaven. We will be glorified and with God forever. It's like, um, you know, later this month, um, I I'm going to go get to see ZZ Top and Creedence Clearwater Revival. How about that? Pretty cool, huh? Yep, going to get to go to a concert, a couple of my favorite bands from way back when in the 70s. And I know that's going to happen. 
That's a reality. And so I could say, I hope I get to go. But I mean, the reality is, I'm going. Everything has been set into place. Everything is ready. The tickets have been purchased. Now, I could choose not to go at this point. But why would I do that? Why would I do that? You see, it's the same for this gift of faith. Everything has been made ready. The way has been established. Faith is your ticket. But you can still choose not to go. For us, the realities are that that if we really see this hope that we have in the glory of God, if we really experience it, if we know we're going to heaven, it changes the way we think about our world. You go to the inside of your sermon notes page. Let's look at verse 3. Paul writes this, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. See, what Paul is saying here is, look, you get this glory of God, hope that that's there, you have a new perspective on your life. You know not only that good news is coming, that heaven is real and will be there for you, it's happening, everything is ready, but you also know it's come. It's come into your life right now, even in the midst of suffering. So not only do you have peace, you have hope. And you have hope that will help you endure. And God will take it and use it for good in your life. You see, this reality is that we can boast in our sufferings. Now think about that. Who wants to boast in suffering? Paul says we can. Because the reason we can is that God is always with us. He's always there. He has poured himself into our lives. And he can use this suffering, this difficulty, this pressure that we're put under. That's what the word suffer means. It means to be put under pressure. And you know what happens? When you put something under pressure, whatever's inside comes out. Like, have you ever walked up to your sink, you know, on a hot day and squeezed the sponge after it's been sitting there for a couple of days? What comes out? You see, and and what what God says is, look, I'm going to be with you and you're going to be in that suffering, but I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to create endurance and I'm going to create character because I'm going to expose the places that I'm going to, I need to work, and I'm going to, I'm going to use all of that together to give you hope, to continue to focus you on what I have done already in the future so that you can live in expectation, in an expectant state that you'll experience it even now while we go through the difficulties of life. God doesn't cause these things, but he uses these things to point us to the reality of the glory of God, to heaven. And at the same time, he forms our character as he does that. So the coolest part, though, for me is that Paul writes, God's love then gets poured into us. It's poured into our hearts. That he changes, he gives us a new heart of flesh instead of stone. And he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that gives us this capacity and power to face day to day the issues and challenges that we all face. So we have peace, right? We have peace. We're justified. We have peace with God. Now we have hope in the future that sustains us in the present. And and we now see the word love as God pours his love into our lives. Let's look at the next section, starting with verse 6. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's love begins to manifest itself as he says, look, I'm going to die for you. And he does it when we were weak, when we're powerless. We can't save ourselves. That's the condition that we live in. And he comes along and says, I love you so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he, while we were weak, he dies for us. While we were sinners, he dies for us. While we were, he, we were his enemies, he dies for us. And surely for a righteous guy, somebody might die. As soldiers have so um, graciously given their lives for our freedoms. But for ungodly, sinner, who are enemies, we would die. Christ stretches out his arms on the cross. And he says, yes, he died for the ungodly. He loves us so much that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Who would die for you today? Who would die for you today? Do you know anyone? See, we can all say Jesus would die for us because he has died for us. So we have peace and hope, and now we have this love, love that is given sacrificially through the offering of life, the greatest kind of love. God would do that much for us, even though we're sinners, ungodly, weak people. He does it. This results in reconciliation, if you look in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. What does that word justified mean? Just as if I have never sinned. I want you to learn that. We've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are by nature children of wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, we, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You see, all that comes together, creation is now able to be restored to the creator all of this shattered in the garden. That's what, that's what happened in Genesis 3. Go read it. And sin began its work and shattered everything and broke apart the relationship that the Creator had with creation. And so what we see is that we are justified in this passage. What does that word mean? Just as if I had never sinned. And we see that, that the wrath of God has now been satisfied. So many people want to say, oh, you know, God is love. And he is, but he's a just God who hates sin and requires that that payment be made. And that wrath remained until Christ died on the cross for us. And now we escape the wrath of God. And, and he did this all, as we've said, while we were yet enemies. And now we can rejoice. What's that word rejoice mean again? Boast. We can boast in, in what God has done through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled. Creation has been restored. And Paul goes on 
as he talks about reconciliation, he explains it. He says, look, go back to the garden. Go back and see what happened in Genesis. And go back and you will see that the curse has been reversed. It's been completely healed. Everything that went wrong there has now been made right or is being made right. And someday we'll experience that recreation. The whole next section, the next nine verses, tells the story. And it's, it's said that this is the most difficult passage in the Bible. So I've tried to make it really simple. And I want you to pull out your notes card or your notes page and take a look at the chart and the words there, which I've color-coded just to help us get through it quickly. You see, the curse separates God from his creation. And when we look at this section, we see a comparison between Adam and between Jesus. Adam and the second Adam, as we'll see, as Jesus is called. He's called the second Adam. We know that sin entered into the, into the world through the, the actions of Adam and Eve. And I've color-coded this so you can see in this section, every time they're talking about Adam and Adam and Eve, you'll see these words. They're in blue. I'm mean, sorry, they're in red. One man, there's, he's called that. Adam is called one man, but so is Jesus, as we'll see. So you need to understand that both of those words apply to each, each person. Many people are affected by this sin. There's sin and trespass and death and condemnation and sin increases and there's disobedience. This is all the stuff of being in Adam. And we're all born in Adam. We're all born with this connection to him. Now, on the other side, he's compared to Christ, and those words are in blue. And the word one man is used there as well. But you have to understand the context to know that it's about where it's about Jesus. He talks about it, many people are also affected. There's righteousness, life, justification, grace, and obedience. So with that set up, let's just walk through this text. It begins this way. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam this time, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So easy to understand. Adam's sin, we inherit it. Everybody from that point forward has a problem and needs justification, needs to be justified. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. All right, now what's that about? What do you mean sin is not counted, Scripture says? Well, here's the challenge. You see, Adam and Eve sinned long before the Mosaic law, the laws of Moses. And yet death still reigned. Okay? But they're not counted in the same way because there was no law from which to measure that behavior. Doesn't mean that sin didn't exist. Think about it. The flood happened. There was plenty of sin during that time before the law, but it was different because it wasn't being counted. It wasn't being measured in the same way. We didn't have the law to tell us the perfect nature of God. Notice what happens, though, in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. There were sinning. How is it not like the transgression of Adam? Well, Adam had a direct word from God. Don't eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree. Everybody else just had the infection of sin. The impact is always the same. Sin is equal to death. 
But we see then that we see then that um, Adam, as it was not like the transgression of Adam, and then then Paul writes this. He says, "Who was a type of the one who was to come." Now we're getting introduced to Jesus, and and what Paul is saying is, look, Adam was like Christ. I want you to think about that for a minute. Adam had no sin. Jesus had no sin. In the beginning, Adam had no sin. Right? Adam had no no earthly father. Yeah, he was a created being. He had no earthly father. Adam had dominion over all the world. He was what we call a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Jesus. And then Jesus comes and he fulfills the perfect picture of what human beings are supposed to be that we could not live, that Adam could not live. So he's called a type of the one who is to come. And then from here down to verse 19... We just get a lot of these comparisons between Jesus and Adam and what they did to the world. And you can see the gift, the free gift. You know, we can see that grace. It's not like the trespass. People died because of that. But the grace of God, the free gift, people, grace, God's grace abounds and, and it, it goes to many people. It's grace on top of grace. You just continue to read down. You just read all the things that happened as a result of Adam's sin and all the things that happened as a result of Jesus' free gift of grace, his justification of our sin. You go to verse 19. It's the summary. This is the verse you can use for summary for the whole passage. It says, For as by the one man's disobedience there are many made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Reconciled, righteous people because of what Christ did. And it all comes and flows from this, this curse in the garden that, that God knew of and began his, his healing process, his healing plan, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And now Paul's saying it happened. Verse 20 is a little bit of confusing verse. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what happened when the law came, it's not that sin increased, that people sinned more, but they were aware of it. Because what the law does, the function of the law, it's a mirror. When we look at it, it shows us we have a problem. And when the law came, of course, people could see more of the glory of God. They could see their sin. And it concludes with these amazing words, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what it means to be justified. Are you justified? Have you been made just as if you had never sinned? These words from our church's website, they're very important. And they point to the centrality of this, this gift called justification. Look what they say. They say, Holy Scripture sums up all of its teachings. Everything that the Holy Scripture, the Bible teaches is summed up. The teaching about his love and, and salvation and faith as the only way. It's summed up in the article of justification, in the teaching of justification that we've talked about this morning. This is central and foundation to our faith. If we don't grasp it, we don't get it. Now, my prayer is that everyone in this room 
has received this gift and understands this gift. These words are, are very instructive to me, also from the same article of faith that I referenced earlier on our website. He justifies, that is, God justifies. He accounts as righteous all those who do what? Believe, accept, and rely on the fact that for Christ's sake their sins are forgiven. Do you believe it? If you do, say amen. 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 Do you accept it? Do you accept it? Can I get an amen? amen? You see, to believe it is here, to accept it is here. It's for me. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done wrong, regardless of how you struggle today, you accept the reality that this justification is for you. And you rely on it because there's nothing else to rely on. This is the gift of justification that we celebrate today, that we've learned about today. This is the gift that gives us peace and hope and love. This is the gift that when we stand in front of God someday, that will allow us to say, when God says, how do you account for your behavior? How do you justify your behavior? We will say simply one word. We'll say Jesus. And God will go, yes. Because that's the plan I have to make you righteous, to make you just as if you have never sinned. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this gift, the blessings, the powerful blessings that you give us through the gift of your word that we have been justified, made just as if we have never sinned. Let that be real in our lives. Let us accept and rely on that gift. And let us receive that gift now as we receive the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.